The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Please stand for a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 40. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of the heaven to the other, whether such a great thing has this, as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard? and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you this uh, today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. And let me welcome you again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are glad to have you with us, especially if you were visiting or you're a guest this morning. Thanks for being here with us. We are continuing our study in the book of Deuteronomy this morning, and we mentioned when we began this study that Deuteronomy is largely a series of three sermons that Moses is giving to the people of Israel just before his death. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. He's not going with them. And these are his last words to the people. And this morning, we are coming to the climax and conclusion of Moses' first sermon. So the first of those three is what we are coming to the end of this morning. And it's kind of a natural breaking point in the book. And so next week, we're going to pause our study in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to pick back up in the Gospel of Luke And so just a programming note, uh, throughout the three years of the Renew campaign, this is kind of the plan. 
We're going to be alternating between the Gospel of Luke and Deuteronomy. And then in October each year, on the anniversary of the start of the campaign, we'll pause and go back to Isaiah and consider again that topic of renewal as we ask God to renew us as a church. And then, of course, obviously during Advent, we'll have the special series like we often do. But for the majority of these three years, we're just going to be going back and forth between Deuteronomy and Luke. And so this week is our last little week in Deuteronomy until uh, the beginning of the new year next year when we'll return to chapter 5. And this morning, we're finishing our time with a great ending, a great ending to a great sermon Moses is landing the plane and driving his main point home. And his main point is this. Israel, what you have in Yahweh is utterly unique. What you have in Yahweh is utterly unique. So follow him with everything that you have. What you have is utterly unique. So follow him with everything that you have. You can see our outline in your bulletin this morning, verses 32 through 34. We'll look at a unique experience of God's revealing and redeeming power. Moses reminds them again, they have seen things that no one has ever seen. And then in verses 35 through 39, we'll see how that, those unique experiences have brought them into a unique relationship. They have a relationship with the one true God. And then finally, that relationship ought to lead them to a unique response. A unique response to God's law, which we'll see in verse 40. So that's our roadmap this morning. That's where we're going. Before we do that, let me pause and pray, and we will ask God to send his spirit and bless our time in his word this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, at the end of this book, Moses tells your people that your words, your law, are no empty word, but they're very life. And so we pray that we would find it to be that this morning. Would it be a light to our feet and a lamp for our path? Would you help us to walk it? Jesus, you said that you are our good shepherd and we're your sheep and that your sheep know your voice. And so I pray you would help us to hear it and to follow it this morning. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So Moses begins where he's been a lot in the first part of Deuteronomy, this unique experience of God's revealing and redeeming power in verses 32 through 34. At the beginning, Moses just proposes a research project for Israel. Look back at 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. So Moses tells them, go back as far as in time as you can to the day of creation and then go across one from one end of heaven to the other end and just ask anyone you encounter this question. Has anyone heard of anything as great as this? As great as what, Moses? What what are you talking about? And then he proceeds to answer that question. He proceeds to take them back through their experience as a people. He shows them again the history that he's been recounting here in the early chapters of Deuteronomy. In verse 33, he takes them back to Mount Sinai, reminds them that you heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire. 
In verse 34, he takes them back to the exodus out of Egypt, where God plucked them out of slavery with mighty acts and signs. And Moses' point as he recounts this history is this. If you go to every corner of time and space, and you ask how many people have experienced God like that, have heard a voice out of fire, have been redeemed through miraculous acts. How many people have that story? You will find no one. There is no one that has a story like this. No one has heard the voice of God and lived. No one has been saved like you have been saved. What you have experienced, Israel, is utterly unique among all the peoples of the earth. And Moses is driving that point home because he wants to say to Israel, that should change you. When you have an utterly unique experience of the one true living God, it changes you. No one else has had this experience like you have, Israel. I used this illustration upstairs a couple of weeks ago, but it actually fits better with this passage, so I'm just using it again. If you were upstairs a few weeks ago and you heard it, I'm sorry. (laughs) We're just going to use it again. Some of you know who follow follow college football that uh, Jim Harbaugh is the head coach at the University of Michigan. Uh, He's a Michigan man through and through. He played quarterback there. uh, He actually grew up in Ann Arbor. His dad was a coach, an assistant coach at the University of Michigan under the legendary coach Bo Schembechler. And Coach Harbaugh has a story that he actually uses for his current Michigan uh, team, but he has a story from when he was growing up in Ann Arbor, and his dad was an assistant coach. And he says when they were growing up, they just didn't have a lot of money. Like college football was not the cash cow that it is now. His dad was a poor assistant coach, and he said their family just had one car. And so when their mother was using the car, their dad would have to, if they had to go somewhere, they would have to walk. And so if they needed to do that, Coach Harbaugh would have the boys grab a basketball, and they would begin walking, and he would tell them while they walked to dribble 100 times with the right hand, and then switch it over and dribble a hundred times with their left hand. And while they were walking and dribbling, Coach Harbaugh would walk them through this liturgy of sorts. He would call out to his boys and he would say, who's got it better than us? And they would say, nobody. Who's got it better than us? Nobody. Over and over and over again as they went down the street. And Coach Harbaugh recounts that story and talks about one of the the strange things as a kid was looking around and realizing, like, in certain senses, it was like, well, I mean, lots of people have it better than us. Some people have two cars, like, and they're not walking everywhere that they go. But as he got older, he talked about how he realized what his dad was doing. His dad was trying to build in to them this sense that they have something that so many people do not have. They have a dad who loves them. They have a family. They have a sense of meaning and purpose. Of all of the things that matter, they have a surplus. And he wanted that built into the DNA of his boys. Who's got it better than you? Nobody. Nobody has it better than you. Moses is trying to drill down for the people of Israel. Who's got it better than you? Nobody. Nobody has it better than you. Who has a God like you? Nobody. Nobody has a God like you have a God. Have the God. 
Nobody has a story like you have a story. God has revealed himself to you through his spoken word and he's redeemed you from slavery by his mighty power. And if that was true for Israel, how much more true is that for us? God spoke to them on the mountain, but we have the words of Jesus, his son. Remember how the book of Hebrews starts long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But through Jesus, he has redeemed you and me from death itself. And what did we have to do to get, that, get him to give us that gift? Nothing. It was free. Remember Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and even that is not your own doing. It is a gift so that no one can boast. What did we contribute to our salvation? We believed, but even that was a gift, Paul tells us. We did nothing, and we got everything. Who has it better than us, Christian? Who has it better than us? What other religion offers you a story like this? Moses is trying to drive home the point to them. No one has a God like this. No one has a story like this. And he says in verses 35 through 39 that that, that unique experience, the story they have with God, means they have a unique relationship. Because God did all of those unique things for Israel. For what purpose? Look back at verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. That you might know. That you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Moses uses that language again in verse 39. He says, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. The point of these unique experiences was so that Israel would know that the Lord is the one true God. There are no other gods. I'm it. And the payoff of that is not just that there is one God and none of these other ones are real. The payoff is that the real and living God wants to have a real and living relationship with you, Israel. Look back at verses 36 and 37. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. Notice that language that he might discipline you. That language pops up again in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses will say, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And that language of discipline is meant to evoke this picture of a parent-child relationship, a parent lovingly forming and shaping their child. Moses says God has given Israel these experiences so that they may know that the Lord is God, but also 
so that they will realize they have a relationship with him. He exists and he wants a relationship with you. This is not some distant deity that they are called to know about in some abstract sense. The one true God is their God. It's even more explicit in verse 37. I wonder if you caught this. Why did God give Israel those unique experiences so that they would know he was God? Yes, but also, Moses says, because he loved your fathers. He loved your fathers. That language of God loving their fathers would have been revolutionary to any ancient Near Easterner. Because of John 3.16, right, for God so loved the world, we are used to this idea that God would love us, would love human beings. It's kind of baked into our sense of who God is. But for the ancient Israelite and all of their neighbors, love was not a language that you used to describe a God's relationship with humanity. The gods use people. The gods can kill people. Gods can show favor to people if they choose to for whatever hidden reason they have. But gods do not love people. That is not how it works. And Moses is telling Israel, for us it is. God loved our fathers. And the implication is he loves us too. He disciplines us like a father lovingly forms and shapes his son. Their unique experiences were to drive them to the realization that they had a unique relationship with the one true God. And so to bring it back to us this morning for a moment, again, how much more true as followers of Jesus One of the realities the New Testament makes abundantly clear is that if you are in Christ, you have been adopted into God's family. You are a child of God. Think about 1 John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Or Romans 8.16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are children of God. Israel has a unique relationship with Yahweh. How much more so those who are following Jesus? That is a unique relationship, children of the heavenly father. Think about all of the New Testament's language about how we are in Christ. We have his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. To be a Christian means that you have a unique relationship with the true and living God. Do we understand that this morning? Do we live as if that is true? As if you were a child of the one true and living God? What would it look like to actually live like that? There's an iconic photo from uh, when John F. Kennedy was president. Uh, It's a picture of him. He's sitting behind the Resolute desk, the president's desk in the Oval Office. And the desk is covered with documents and with materials. But what makes the photo distinct is that at the president's feet, there's a secret panel in the desk. And in the picture, it's popped open. And peering out from behind the secret panel is a young John F. Kennedy Jr., 
And he's got a very boy-like expression on his face while his dad is working on the desk above him. The history of the desk is interesting. FDR had actually uh, ordered the desk. It was a normal desk where you could usually see the legs of whoever was sitting behind it. And FDR had ordered a panel to be installed so that it would hide his leg braces while he was president. He didn't want the people to see that. And so by the time JFK came into office, that panel was still there, but it secretly would pop out if you knew uh, where to press. And John F. Kennedy Jr., while his father was president, called that space under the desk, my house. That's my house. Can't you see like a little boy saying that? Doesn't that just sound like a little boy? It's my house. Think about that picture for a moment. We were talking about the Oval Office. This is the desk of the most powerful man in the world. This is the seat of his power. Like you and I could not pass, we wouldn't make it past the front lawn of the White House unannounced, right? People get tackled every year, jumping over the fence and trying to make it. Much less into the room itself. What person that is not the president would dare call that sacred space my house? And the answer, of course, is his precious baby boy. And the smile on JFK's face in that picture while his son is playing under the desk says, it's his house. He is delighted to have his son in there. JFK Jr. can go into that space because that man was not just his president, but his father. He had access because it was his father. If you are in Christ this morning, God is not simply your creator. He is that. But he also invites you to call him father. You have access to the father, the king of the universe. Israel had a unique relationship with the Lord, but it was always pointing forward to something deeper that you and I are experiencing even now and will experience even more deeply hereafter. Do you live like that is true? Do you go to the throne of grace with confidence that you will find help in your time of need? Do you confess your sins like there is a father who is ready to welcome you home? Do you come to this table as if it is a meal set by your father for you who's been waiting for you to come, your favorite meal? Do you come expectantly because you have access? Because he is not just your God, he is not just your creator, he is your father. We have a unique relationship with the God of heaven and earth and we ought to live like it. How we live and respond to God is where Moses concludes. And just briefly, this is verse 40, a unique response to God's law. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Moses finishes by saying, therefore, in light of everything we've just talked about, here's what you do, obey. 
keep the commandments. But we have to follow the order of operations here. Does Moses tell them, obey, so that God will accept you and rescue you? No. That's already happened. That's why he was recounting the history earlier. They have already had the unique experiences of salvation. God has already chosen them and plucked them out of Egypt. Their obedience, therefore, is to be a response to God's favor, not a prerequisite for it. Their obedience is to be a response to God's favor, not a prerequisite for it. And Moses tells them, here's a cherry on top. If you will obey, it will go well with you and with your children, and you'll live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Blessing on top of blessing. Moses is inviting them to the good life. And I say this is a unique approach to God's law because most of us treat the law of God, obeying God, as something that we have to grudgingly do as a kind of forsaking of the good life. And Moses says it is something you do out of love that you, because you know it is where the good life is. You want the good life and this is the way in. So often we hear people talk about obedience as if you, if you check the boxes, you're saved, you get in, you get to go to the good place when you die. But Israel has already been saved. They're already in. They are walking into the promised land as Moses is talking. So this is how they are to live in response. This is how you live as saved people. All morning I've been saying, if this is true for Israel, how much more so for us as Jesus followers and Jesus says, uses similar language. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But we know we only ever love Jesus because he first loved us. It is always a response to his love. We are always responding to his move towards us. It's probably a silly way to close, but this is the image that's been stuck in my head all week. Um, some of you have a dog that you have adopted who will not leave your side a rescue dog, and you say cheesy things like, really, they rescued me. But you know that you have rescued that dog. That dog is anxious when you leave. They are so eager to please you that it is annoying, right? And the simple reason is because you saved them. You gave them food and shelter, but you also gave them love and affection and everything that dogs want from us, right? And that is a fraction, an infinitesimal fraction of the kind of love, the picture of unique obedience that Moses calls us to here. He has saved us. He has given us everything we are looking for. So we will go anywhere and we will do anything for him. We will echo those words of the disciple who when Jesus asked you, you want to go away too, said, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have a unique relationship with God because of unique experiences that he has given you if you are in Christ, so lovingly obey him. He has given you his body and his blood. Let me close this in prayer as we prepare to go to the table. Heavenly Father, we, we marvel that we may call you Father, that you are our God, our creator, our maker, you're the one and only, and you invite us to call you Father. Lord, we thank you 
that, there, that no one else has a story like this. And we know that this story is not just for us, but for all peoples. So I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet believed, would you open their eyes to see that you long to be their father as well? For those of us who have believed, Lord, would you help us in our unbelief? Would you help us to follow you with everything that we have? Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.